Hello and welcome to the No Barriers podcast. In a moment, I'm going to throw you into the intersection of human willpower and biomechanics. After this episode, you'll be wondering, is the term disability about to be dismantled and reshaped by pioneers using the power of technology? Our guests, Keenan Whirling and Russell Martin, two PhD students from the Stanford Biomechatronics Lab. The topic, wearable robots, exoskeletons. All right, so maybe the first image that comes to mind are futuristic versions of these creations. They're all over Hollywood and blockbuster movies like Avatar, Black Panther, Spider-Man, Iron Man. But here in the real world, innovations in exoskeletons have the potential to truly change lives. Can they give someone confined to a wheelchair the option of walking down the street? Or what about an exoskeleton that gives them the freedom to go for a run along the beach? One thing about Keenan, though, he can't go for that run on the beach, give his wife a piggyback, or hike with his dog. Why? He's got an incurable degenerative neuropathy. It's been slowly paralyzing him from the feet up. Life in a wheelchair could be right around the corner for him. Is restoring mobility for people with disabilities like Keenan's really possible? Stick around and find out. I'm producer Diedrich Junk, and this is the No Barriers Podcast. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. And that unexplored terrain between those dark places we find ourselves in the summit exists a map that way forward is what we call no barriers. Hey everyone, welcome to the No Barriers podcast. And we are so excited to have these two guests on today. But before I introduce them, I want to introduce Billy Lister, my co-host today. What a special opportunity to have Billy on board. How you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Eric. How about yourself today? I'm doing fine. And for everyone, Billy hosts from time to time. He jumps in in his busy schedule. Billy is on our board. And... I'm going to brag about you for a second, Billy, in case people forgot since your last appearance. Please do. I'm, my, my humble nature lends itself for you to, to brag on my behalf. I will do that. And also, <laughs> I'm going to wildly exaggerate everything because it's really fun to do that. Of course. Eric, you, you wouldn't be you if you didn't exaggerate everything you said. Yeah. So you worked in the financial industry in Manhattan. You had a totally fine, stable, awesome job. I know you had this stroke when you were a kid. And you lost the use of, partly the use of half of your body. It was just this wild thing that happened to you. And you came out to the No Barriers Summit, which is our big festival that celebrates the No Barriers life. And some folks got you on a bike. And I don't think you had ridden a bike since your injury. And you got on that bike and they helped you clip in and figure out how to ride. And you're like, wow, this is awesome. And ignited a dream in you to be part of the Paralympics. And so you trained your ass off and competed in the Paralympics. And now you're just living the dream. And we 
drew you into our No Barriers board, and you're one of the ambassadors for No Barriers. So it's just really fantastic to to be bragging about your story, Billy. I I appreciate those kind words, Eric. It it means a lot to me. Coming from you, I I remember and can hearken back to that very first summit that I attended when, when we first met all the way back in 2009. And I was a really scared kid at the time, you know, still figuring out my life with a disability, figuring out where I fit in the world and trying to find an identity. I remember sitting in that back row, the opening night of that summit before we really developed our friendship. And I was trying to hide. I was trying to hide from the world. I was trying to hide from from anything, from everything. And through the No Barriers mindset, through that weekend, through that first summit, it just, it opened up my world. It opened up my eyes. It opened up my heart. So many aspects to my life that I never knew were possible were all born and motivated and inspired by the No Barriers mindset. The mindset that we instill that shows what's within you stronger than what's in your way. That catapulted me to a trajectory of, uh, of a life unknown to, to become a United States Paralympian and, and get involved with incredible, brilliant minds like the individuals who we're going to have this incredible yeah. conversation with here today. So please, enough about me. Let's dive into these amazing, fantastic guys. And these guys might have some questions for you because they were trying to figure out the biomechanics of how you ride a bike and how you function, how you do it, how you flourish. And so realize they might turn the tides on you. (laughs) Keenan and Russell, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. Billy has a really, I think, cool connection of how he got to know you guys. You want to tell that story quickly, Billy? Sure. Yeah. So So it was really a very natural and organic occurrence how I got introduced to the Stanford Biomechatronics Laboratory. I was living up in the Bay Area, in the Palo Alto area a couple of years ago, and was really getting interested and intrigued by the world and rise of artificial intelligence. And not only what it can do from a global perspective, but also what it can do from an innovation to with individuals with disabilities. And so mm-hmm. I had gotten involved with the Stanford HAI, which is the Human-Centered Artificial Intelligence Institute. And A part of their work is they award grants to certain laboratories and organizations who are doing work in artificial intelligence. And so one day I attended a webinar for some grantee awards and the biomechatronics laboratory was presenting on their work, the work that they were doing in the adaptive adaptive world, trying to help individuals with disabilities. And they're doing some incredible work. And and so reached out to them a couple of years ago. And that's what created this beautiful relationship that has <laughs> flourished a couple of years later. And I'm really excited to, to become a future participant in their research. Yeah, Russell and Keenan, you guys, he's the greatest guinea pig ever. <laughs> if you need more research guinea pigs. Yeah. Oh, man. We can't use the word guinea pig. That's not true. It's for the insight. He is the expert and we are the students. Yeah. I appreciate that, Russell, but you can poke and prod me all you want because it's all for for the help of what you guys are innovating and what you guys are really trying to make a paradigm shift for individuals like myself and the hundreds of thousands and millions of other individuals in the United States and across the world who suffer with mobility difficulties and challenges. Billy, I just want to say that you are a good guinea pig. I want to keep promoting this idea because you got on the front of my tandem bike and that was a wild experience. A guy who has a stroke and uses half of his body and a blind guy on the back. And we were barreling down the hill in my neighborhood. Keenan and Russell, we did bleed, just for the record. We bled one time hard. But after only, that, we figured it out. It was only one out. crash. It was only one yeah. crash. Yeah. All right. 
And I want to tell you my connection as well. One of the founders of No Barriers is Hugh Herr, who runs the biomechatronics laboratory at MIT. Hugh's a good friend, and I visited his laboratory with his amazing prosthetic legs and so forth. Have you guys come across Hugh in a conference or something like that? I've never actually met him in person, but I hear wonderful things, and I've worked with a lot of his students. Yeah, he's a good climber, and... uh... He built his own prosthetic legs that got him back on the wall and became in some ways a better climber than when he had feet. Totally amazing no barrier story. And Keenan, you have an amazing no barrier story, a personal story, because I just want to launch in with a big inquiry here, but which is, so you have this degenerative disease and I understand you're paralyzed from the knees down and it's progressive. And this work that you guys are doing is so imperative. It's not just good for the world. It's, it's going to wildly enhance your life <laughs> as well. So you have this added yeah. stake and purpose in making this happen. Yeah. And that's a wild, I love that piece of it. It must give you extra motivation to wake up in the morning. Yeah, I mean, it, it for sure does. It's, yeah. Being, being born with a condition like this is, I, I feel unlucky about it in some ways, but in most ways, I actually feel very fortunate to have had this in my life. Like being born with, to the best parents in the world, with all the advantages you could possibly imagine, and just one letter wrong in my genetic code, which causes this kind of very slow degeneration. I have memories of being six or seven and, and running across the playground and being perfectly healthy, and then... Now, as a 30-year-old man, I'm paralyzed from the knee down. I have a lot of thigh weakness. My hands are starting to go. Thankfully, it'll never kill me. It's just a slow constriction of what I can do mechanically with my body. But in a way, that's that's really helped shape my life. Because when I was very young and everyone else was out on the playground, they had me in the library like learning how to use computers. And, yeah. and that compounds. You do that for 20-some-odd years. You can't go outside and play sports, so you just get better and better at working with machines and then pretty soon Mm -hmm. Stanford's letting you in and Hmm. asking you to figure stuff out. And that's, and you had a big change, right? Because you were working like developing bots and this other technology, right? And then you decided what, I want to find something that gives me more purpose in life or how did you make that big change to becoming a PhD student? It's all part of the same arc because Growing up, I went to Gillette Children's Hospital in Minnesota, which is just a wonderful place, and and worked with all the neurologists there who would tell me every time I would ask them about how a cure was coming, they'd say, oh, it's 10 years away. And I'd drill down and they'd be like, the real problem is that it's a rare disease and someone needs to put up $100 million to make this thing work. And no one is around to do that because there's no market for... So I thought to myself naively, okay, I'll go try to make $100 million and <laughs> donate that to somebody and make a cure. And so I started a company right out of undergrad and we were selling AI software to automate customer support to small and medium-sized businesses. And we grew the company. We hired up to 10 people and had some medium-sized enterprise contracts ended up selling the company to Square, the payment processing, so that they could bundle it into their software stack that they provide for free to everyone who uses their credit card processing system. We uh, we failed in our goal of uh, Keenan making enough money to donate to a pharma 
company and get a Charcot Marie tooth to a cure over the line. Uh, we weren't even, weren't even close, like way, way, way off. So after doing that and seeing how hard it was and really appreciating that making a hundred million dollars was going to be, was going to be extraordinarily difficult. I figured there must be a more direct way. Charcot Marie Tooth was continuing to eat away at my nerves and my mobility was getting worse. And I mean, I'm not a bio person, so I can't go make the bio cure myself, but I am pretty good with computers and robots. So I thought maybe if I went back to grad school and put in five or six really solid years working on exoskeletons, maybe we could make enough progress that I could wear something every day and functionally retain my mobility as though it were a cure, even if it's not really biologically a cure. Ken, that, that is amazing. And, you know, a part of the no barrier lifestyle and mindset is, you know, we always like to bring awareness to individuals, disabilities and diseases. So maybe could you give a little insight into, into what you deal with? So the name is Charcot Marie Tooth. I know a couple individuals who, who also suffer from that, who experience a lot of foot drop and just a lot of challenges from, from a gait and walking perspective. Uh, yeah. So we want to put light onto the actual name of what, uh, you know, what you deal with yeah. in your life. Yeah. So foot drop is definitely the, the early onset symptom. Over time, what's happened is that I, I can't move my ankles at all. Like I can, if I really concentrate on it, I can kind of twitch my big toe on each foot, but otherwise it's like walking on stilts. I just don't have any actuation at the bottom of the tibia. And then I've gotten so much weakness in my upper legs now that I have to walk with locked knees because if my knees get bent, I just collapse. And so I, I had a really bad fall about a year ago where I nearly tore my ACL. They, they thought I had torn my ACL. I had to go in and I, we were about ready to do surgery and everything. And thankfully the, the MRI or whatever scan they did on me found a tiny little bit of the uh, tissue still left. So I healed, but it was six months of not being able to walk around. It's just yeah. anyway. And so, Keenan, so you're personally testing the exoskeletons as well, or you have <laughs> tested them. I do test yeah. them. Yeah. I will say I don't wear anything every day yet. Right. And that's the mission. But right? you said we the ones to get that to you did test, where... you felt like you're walking through quicksand or like you're in a three-legged race. I really like that analogy because it really was so descriptive in your blog. And also... <sighs> You were saying that it's just you want these things to feel like they're part of your body. And so in yeah. your blog, you really synthesize these important questions. Like if you can wrap your head around an important question, then maybe you can solve it. Right. So, yeah. Tell me about the ones that you've tested and how they fall short yeah. and so forth. OK, I I think fall short is a I don't want to I don't want to cast this in a negative light because mm -hmm. there's a lot of people who are working extremely hard on really great technology right. and I think they all deserve tons of credit. Yeah. I think the there's multiple challenges with exoskeletons, right? Uh one of the challenges is how do you strap motors to a body so that it's comfortable and you can deliver a lot of force and you can really augment the person. And biological muscles are incredibly powerful. So replicating that amount of force with electromechanical actuation is really challenging. And then making the battery lightweight enough that you can actually do anything is really hard. People have been making a lot of progress on that problem. I think the problem that's harder, but that people are maybe starting to make progress on now is, so you've got a machine and you've strapped it onto your body. And now you've got these enormously powerful motors, maybe at your knees and your ankles and your hips. What do you tell them to do? 
and and one answer one answer to that question is you say okay well i have some normative gate that i think is like a quote unquote healthy gate and i'm just going to force people to walk in that gate by applying motor torques to just correct quote unquote any deviations that i think are wrong but i think that's philosophically backwards right i want the exoskeleton to increase my autonomy there are things i want to do and i need it to respect me <laughs> and not try to correct me, mm -hmm. right? I want it to, I want it to augment my strength rather than treat me like a patient and say, the way you walk or the way you move is wrong and I'm gonna force you to do it the right way. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. So Russell, like for Billy's case, where he has trouble with one side of his body, you could create like an exoskeleton that just attends to that side, to what's necessary, while the other side is perfectly healthy. How does that work? That's exactly right. And so the device we have right now that Billy is going to get to walk in pretty soon is exactly that. So it's unilateral, meaning it works on one side of his body, because when you have a stroke, typically you have one side of your body that has hemiparesis, that is, it is less strength and neural control. And so we have an exoskeleton that works on that side. And not only that, but we've actually chosen to target particular joints in the lower limb, because commonly with stroke, the distal joints, like the ankle, the ones that are further from your center of mass are more affected. And Keenan was talking about where there are things that affect your the angle of your ankle when you're walking and it can cause tripping and it can affect your ability to propel yourself forward. We designed the exoskeleton with all these things in mind. And once the device is built and is able to be controlled consistently, then we have the person come along and have them walk in the device and we measure how the assistance at those joints affects their energy costs as they walk or their comfort or how they activate their muscles. That is so incredible, Russell, because it's amazing to hear you speak about it so intelligently and so eloquently, because it's what I found in my personal experience as a stroke survivor, is it can be very hard to explain how paralysis affects individuals who've experienced stroke. Most of the time, when you say paralysis to, to, to an individual, they automatically think of spinal cord injuries and not automatically regarding neurological paralysis. I, I, I always say that my paralysis is very extremity-based, you know, and just like you were saying from the distal perspective, is that the farther you go out on either extremity, whether it's arm or leg, the worse the paralysis gets. That's why I was able to, to pilot a tandem with a blind guy on the back of it on a bicycle, because I can engage some core glutes and quads on my left side, but... You know, I've got zero function in my fingers and zero function in my toes. So Billy, I'm curious if, if you don't mind me asking, can you describe a little bit more about the pattern of weakness? Like, do you, you really can't move your ankles and your fingers at all? At or all. is there some twitching or what's the, so I've got all. zero, okay. I've got zero function in my fingers and, and zero function in my toes. I could kind of, you know, engage my hamstring. Like you said, if you focus really hard and you put all of your maximum effort that you have into twitching that muscle, I could get something from a hamstring level perspective, but my okay. toes have zero function. And from an ankle articulation perspective, same with my wrist, there's zero functional control. Now there's manipulative control that I can go in there and manipulate it or have somebody move it around, but I can't control sure. it personally speaking. Can you feel it? Do you still have proprioception? Can you sense where the limb is or, or is that, is it? Interestingly enough for me, just because of the way that my stroke manifested itself. So I suffered a, a 30 day long stroke. So it lasted four weeks. That was a slow and aggressive process. I was gifted with a lot of things, you know, as a result of my stroke. And one of those is I actually have a hypersensation. 
So I actually have an increased amount of sensation, which is very, very unique and, and very not the norm for stroke survivors who suffer loss of sensation. Mine is just, it's not necessarily that hot is hotter and cold is colder. It's more that my brain doesn't know how to process the neurons of sensations on my skin. And so when, whenever I feel some sort of sensation, it feels like the 4th of July going off in my head. Wow. Interesting. How does that manifest when you ride the bike? I was just going to ask that. Uh, it's, Good question, it's exhilarating. Russell. It's exciting. And, and that's why, from a cycling perspective, that's why I can say that sport and, and cycling was something that, that saved my life is because it, it was able to redirect a lot of that, that uncontrolled over sensations that I was experiencing throughout my life. Um, you know, kind of like Superman when the first time he was on Earth and, and opened up his senses and everything just flooded in all at once. That was kind of what I felt like. But getting on a bicycle was what calmed those sensations. And so was able to kind of connect more into the feeling of it rather than the proprioception of it and was able to tire a lot of those senses just through physical exertion and activity and movement and, and kind of get a nervous system a little more tired. So everything isn't overloading yeah. and actually can feel it um, on a lower volume scale, which helps. Don't reason. fall left. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just, just, you got to fall right. Yeah. Fall right. And don't, and don't forget where the brakes are. <laughs> I have a, to change tax, I have a question for you guys, because you guys are working with lots and lots of past experience, lots of iterations and so forth. But do you know the history, like the brief history of exoskeletons? Like, where did they start with this process? Like, did somebody just dream it up, you know, from maybe Iron Man or something like that? I think it goes back a lot further than Iron Man. <laughs> Russell, you probably know this better than me. There's some, the first one was some Russian exoskeleton in the 1800s. Yeah, there's then... some really cool sketch out there of, it looks like a Da Vinci sketch, but it's not quite that old, of some person walking and it looks like the exoskeleton is some sort of springy kind of device that helps them extend a lot of limbs. And it's just a concept, but that is often what is alluded to as the, the first exoskeleton, at least in thought. Yeah, so the, you get the concept, and then now you have to build the technologies that can actually create the, the technology. <laughs> yeah, so. I think there's the, the early stuff was, you could call it bracing, right? And bracing has come a long way and is incredibly useful. Like without bracing, I would be in a wheelchair. With bracing, I'm a little gimpy, but I can get around. I, when I'm really well rested, people sometimes don't notice that I walk with a limp. And you call these wearable robotics, right? So that's really interesting. I mean, obviously it's robotics, but it's funny. I think of a robot as my Zumba, that little guy that yeah. cruises around. It's a robot that you're wearing. That's cool. Absolutely. Yeah, we you know we call ourselves the biomechatronics lab and half of that is mechatronics and all mechatronics is is actuators like motors and, and sensors, strain sensors and uh, cameras and things like that. And, and all we're doing is integrating those basic components of mechatronics and applying them in the biomechanical sphere. Yeah. Piles and piles of software in the middle. Yes, and <laughs> piles of software. How could I forget the most important ingredient? Yeah. Yeah. We talked about strokes. I know you help folks with amputations as well, say a leg amputation. But my question is, why is an exoskeleton potentially better than just a really good prosthetic? I think they serve different, different uses. For one thing, a, a really good prosthetic requires you to be an amputee. And yeah. there are lots of folks out there who have biomechanical impairments of some sort or another, but their limbs themselves are intact and able to wear something like an exoskeleton. 
another advantage of exoskeletons is that they can be taken on and taken they can be put on and taken off relatively easily which is useful for when you're going to go to sleep or wake up or you have different needs that you need to have fulfilled in certain times and so you can put on or take off the device probably a little bit more simply than you would a prosthesis mm-hmm. and if you just it's a, a little it, help oh. a little assistance because maybe one side is weaker i get that but what about folks who are totally paralyzed paraplegics quadriplegics they have no use of their lower body right so then the device has to do a lot more yeah, that's exactly right. And, and it's particularly the device has to do more balancing for the user. And, and balance is a really tricky, I would say, relatively state-of-the-art challenge for the field. There are lots of really smart people thinking about how an exoskeleton can help their user balance. And I think when that problem is, once that problem is thoroughly addressed, the, these kinds of devices could make their way to people who have more significant impairments like spinal cord injury and help them balance, which would then help them be more mobile and make it through their world. And if you guys put your wizard hat on, what, how long do, till people actually, paraplegics will have a functioning exoskeleton that they can use in their daily lives that, you know, that, that work not as in the laboratory, but work in real life. (laughs) Is that impossible to answer? It's tough. I think they're, they're really, are two separate problems. There's the augmentation of existing limbs, and then there's the um, more or less complete replacement of the nervous system. And I think in some ways, the, the complete replacement of the nervous system, paradoxically, is kind of an easier problem. What you do is you end up taking like the Atlas robot, that's the Boston Dynamics full humanoid, and you just adjust the size so you can put a person in it. <laughs> and then you keep, you keep the software the same because it's just a walking robot. And then the goal is to replace a wheelchair so that people who are paraplegics can be at eye level with someone and experience all of the benefits of being standing, which are, there's a lot of well-documented health benefits of getting out of the chair and other things. So that's incredibly impactful. And actually I would track the Boston Dynamics research and things in that vein for kind of measuring progress on that front. And Boston Dynamics so far has produced really great demos on YouTube, not a ton of commercially available devices. The quadrupeds are starting to get there. The bipeds are harder because you just need more balance, like Russell was hey, saying. Hey, Eric, I think I think this is a really good point to as we're talking about the future. And we've touched on it a little bit so far in this conversation, but I really want to get more more in detail, more in depth as to the, the influence of artificial intelligence and software and programming that is having on your guys' work. They're not just skeletons that you just put on and start walking. Like they have the potential to learn like the individual and what their actual biomechanics are. So each system could be individually catered to each individual because it's learning in real time. Absolutely. Russell, you want to go first? Sure. I'll leave the hard artificial intelligence answers to Keenan. But what I mean, artificial intelligence in in a nutshell is just you know is algorithms that are are tuned very well using lots of data. A algorithm that we use that is not quite artificial intelligence, but it still falls under the algorithm umbrella, is something we do called human in the loop optimization, and that goes exactly into what you were talking about, Billy. Where it's important that the device is customized to the person who's using it because. People come in different sizes and shapes. Mobility impairments range from person to person. Even within the community of people who have had a stroke or have other conditions, those conditions manifest differently depending on the person. And so we, our lab is really proud of the work we've done in human in the loop optimization where we can have the person wear a device, walk in it, we measure how it affects their 
things like energy cost of walking. And we tune the assistance the person gets to try to maximize the benefit the person receives from the device. And Billy, that's actually what we'll be looking to do when you come to test with us is doing this sort of, you know, putting you in the loop with the exoskeleton and seeing how we can modulate the exoskeleton to modulate your walking to maximize your benefit from the device, which is a really insightful way to determine what the ceiling of utility is for the device like that. So that's what I would say is an algorithm that is helping with exoskeletons and exoskeleton assistance. I'm going to throw it to Keenan now for how... So that human in-loop optimization, though, mm -hmm. like just so I get a visual on it, is yeah. it like a person walking on a treadmill with a thousand wires connected to the uh, exoskeleton? <laughs> Not really. It could be wires. Most commonly, what we're trying to do is make the device uh, maximize your energy benefit. So make it so you can walk more efficiently without getting tired as easily. And the way we can measure the energy cost for a person is we have them wear... Uh, a mask that ha measures the oxygen you breathe in and the CO2 you breathe out. And there's a simple equation out there that you can use um, to calculate the amount of energy a person is consuming when you get those oxygen and CO2 measurements. So if you've seen those videos of like professional cyclists, like maybe Billy has done this, doing a VO2 max test, and they're wearing that blue mask with the tube coming off of it. We do that in the lab as a first pass to identify how uh, energetically beneficial these devices can be for the person. And then we've also developed some AI uh, algorithms to estimate how much energy a person is expending when they're walking in real life. Because in real life, you don't want to wear that blue mask around when you're on the bus or walking to the store. And so we have some really simple little sensors that we've put on the exoskeleton that can then extrapolate to how much energy the person is using, which makes it really easy to optimize your assistance in the real world instead of in the lab. Mm. Wow, so cool. Yeah, I, I want to tell a really funny story. As a retired, you know, Paralympic cyclist, I've always trained with a lot of wearables on, on me for a long time, a variety of different biometric wearables. And a lot of these, a lot of these different devices are able to just like you said, using an algorithm and using machine learning and just the way that they're programmed will always give you some sort of exertion metric, some sort of activity level for whatever you do. And so I could, before when I was training full time, I could go out for a 50 mile bike ride. So go for a three hour bike ride. And based on my heart rate and based on my level of exertion, it would give me a number of how hard I actually worked out. Then I would go later in the year. 50 miles in three hours is pretty fast. <laughs> He's fast. Uh, I was pretty, yeah. pretty fast cyclist. Yeah. And then I, but this is the hilarious part is that I could go for a, a 50 mile bike ride. It would give me, it would spit out a number. It said, this is how, this is what, this is how hard you work. And then later in the day, I would go for like a quarter mile walk around my neighborhood with my dog and the physical act of walking because of my bio because of my biomechanics and because of my stroke and how difficult it is to walk it would give me the same exact level of exertion to go for a quarter mile walk for 20 minutes as it would to go for a 50 mile bike ride and so that just goes to show one how important and beneficial these types of wearable metrics can be and, and the types of testing that you're doing, but also goes to show that from a physical function perspective, having gait challenges and inability to walk really affects you in such dramatic ways that most people don't really, yeah. really give credence to. I feel like that energy expenditure part of being disabled is often totally missed by healthy people. Agreed. Like that, how difficult it is to just go to the farmer's market yeah. or something is it's exhausting. Yeah. Right. And yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good point. So the exoskeletons are efficiency, speed, and balance. So forget Billy's problems. What about like everyday people? Everyone wants to be a superhero. Everyone wants to be able to jump like 10 feet in the air and, and absolutely. Uh, do a thousand pull-ups, right? Is yeah. that always like a thought? Like, you know, because a lot of technologies, of when they help the disabled, they also wind up being a massive benefit to society in general. Yeah, I think the, the the most fun stuff that I can do as a disabled person also happens to be things that able-bodied people choose to do. That's kind of one of my heuristics for whether I should try a new disability sport. It's like if I see that that able-bodied people are choosing to do it, it's probably pretty awesome. Like, so Kanan, do you put the, uh, div- like one of the exoskeletons on and go out at nighttime and solve crimes or anything like that? <laughs> I, I mean, someday, someday, not today. I, I think that's a profound point, Eric. I think everyone wants more ability. Everyone wants more physical ability. And we draw some arbitrary line in society. It's totally context dependent about like below this line, you're disabled above it. You're normal. But people who are above the line still don't get to go play in the NBA. They still don't get to jump 10 feet. They don't get to fly. They're not out solving crimes at night. (laughs) So like we can push everyone up. So absolutely, we're thinking about this. Russell, what about, obviously, the military, right? I always hear about exoskeletons. Wasn't there something called the Incredible Hulk or something like that that the military was testing? I haven't heard about that one in particular, but yes, there have been some interesting endeavors by defense, either by the military or by military contractors, to build better exoskeletons like that. And I think it's really interesting. It it drives good insight for the field about what we learn from these devices, because these devices are often different than devices you would design for primarily for use by someone who's had a stroke, for example. They often have really high, for example, they're really, they can deliver a lot of torque to the person. They're made for carrying a hundred pound backpack or something crazy like that. And so I think the, the summation of lessons you learn from work that we do with people who've had stroke, for example, and what the military does with their able-bodied 22-year-old guys traveling 100 miles with their devices. It's all good information for the field, and it all, like you said, can create positive externalities for everybody. Yeah, because I remember Hugh telling me, Hugh Her telling me, he's like, it's kind of a sad fact that he said the wars, the war in Iraq and in Afghanistan, they really attributed to prosthetic development. He's like, without that funding. Yeah. And without all that focus and, uh, you know, it's a sad fact that people had to go off and get injured, but that's what stimulated all the so much of the funding and progress. So I imagine there's a lot of crossover between I mean, not totally, but between folks with disabilities and, and exoskeletons for enhanced performance. I got a question for you guys. A lot of your focus is on improving the design methods for everything going around the, you know, the building of these exoskeletons. Do you guys have goals of collaborating with, you know, like, you know, somebody like that we're talking about with Hugh Her and the MIT Biomechatronics Laboratory, where if you guys get to the point where you're improving the design process so dramatically and so greatly, can you then reach out to other biomechatronics laboratories in the country who are doing different types of work from the system's perspective and share your knowledge and share your research? I mean, how how open sourced is the work within biomechatronics? Yeah, I would say one great example of that. So our lab, we build exoskeleton emulators. And an emulator is something that can simulate what it's like to walk in an exoskeleton 
with certain parameters, you know, the exoskeleton has a certain amount of strength that can assist your particular limbs. And because these devices are emulators, we can simulate a lot of different kinds of assistance. And so we had collaborators at Georgia Tech who had this device that assisted at the hips and maybe the knees as well. This is my first year of my PhD. And they sent us their specifications for how their exoskeleton worked and how strong it was and things like that. And we did some optimization with our exoskeleton emulators and we found the assistance parameters that in our lab at least, led to the maximum benefit. And then we sent those assistance parameters back to them and they were able to iterate on that. So yeah, I think that's one example of really exciting cross-collaboration with us and with other groups in the same space. I should also say everything is open source, Billy. <laughs> this is, everything is open, all the designs, all the software, all the data. Um, so absolutely, we all work together. I have one last technical question and that is, I hear the battery life is only 30 minutes. So like, you know, you guys talked about all these big challenges ahead, but that seems like the biggest challenge, right? If you only get a half an hour of use, it's not very functional, right? So what's the thoughts on how to increase that? I mean, that's one of the reasons why the military applications are hard. Yeah. I, apart from the fact that that young men are also incredibly strong, I think the first application for exoskeletons is folks with limited mobility who want to use these devices to just have experiences that they're not able to have. Mm. I mean, speaking personally, I just want to, I want to give my wife a piggyback ride. I want to go for a run on the beach. I want to walk up the stairs of some cathedral in Europe and get to see the view from up top, which I never get to see. And if I can just do one of those things on a battery mm -hmm. and be done, like that would be a huge breakthrough. And then going beyond that, there, there are a lot of really cool biomechanically inspired ideas for increasing the battery life by using springs and using dampers and other devices that don't consume power to recycle power from your gate. And there's a lot of opportunities for that. The research is progressing. We'll see how it goes. Keenan, I don't think you could end on a, a better note, that personal touch of the personal goals that you have for exoskeletons. I think that's really powerful. And I want to thank you guys so much for taking time out of your busy schedule, changing the world. Billy, thank you as well. And no barriers to everyone. Yeah, thank you, Eric. This was a really enlightened conversation. And I think it's fascinating what, what the future can hold. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. That was a lot of fun. The production team behind this podcast includes producer Diedrich Jonk, that's me, and audio engineer Tyler Kotman. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, share it, and hey, we'd be thrilled for a review. Show notes can be found at NoBarriersPodcast.com. There's also a link there to shoot me an email with any suggestions or guest ideas for the show. Thanks so much, and have a great day. The